0: This week on The Change Law, we're talking about big security breaches with Neil Daswani, renowned security expert, best-selling author, and co-director of Stanford University's advanced cybersecurity program, his book, Big Breaches, Cybersecurity Lessons for Everyone, helped to guide this conversation. We cover the six common key causes, aka vectors that lead to breaches. Which of these causes are exploited most often? Recent breaches, such as the Equifax breach in 2017, the Capital One breach in 2019, and the more recent SolarWinds breach in 2020. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. Linode is simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing that developers trust. Linode is our cloud of choice. We trust them, and we think you should build anything you're working on, a fun side project, or that next big infra move at work with Linode. The best part, you can get started on Linode with $100 in free credit. Get all the details at linode.com changelog, or text changelog to 474747, and get instant access to that $100 in free credit. Again, linode.com changelog.
1: So we are here and excited to talk about some big security breaches, cybersecurity breaches with Neil Daswani. Neil, thanks for coming on the Changelog.
2: Thanks for having me. It's good to be here.
1: Well, I thought I would steal a couple of facts from your book to set the stage here. A couple of things you say right in the beginning, you say in a series of breaches, key background data of over 20 million U.S. government employees and a large fraction of U.S. consumer financial and social media records have been stolen. And in the past 15 years, more than 9,000 data breaches have occurred. This is something that's going on all the time, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, If we go back to 2015, for instance, the government's Office of Personnel Management was breached. And that's the breach in which the 20 million government identities, government employee identities were stolen. But that's just one of many, many breaches. And if you kind of go a little bit earlier in that, Paragraph, I I talk about, uh, you know, America's been hacked. But the hacking of America has not been a singular event. It's through a series of breaches, like the Office of Personnel Management breach that targeted government identities, and like the Equifax breach, in which the consumer financial records of over 140 million Americans were, were stolen. If we look at some of the abuses and breaches at Facebook, a large volume of social media data about consumers has has also been stolen so you put all these things together and it's really makes up a attempt at hacking the country overall Mm.
1: so let's rewind back to 2007 you were working at google and you co-wrote this book foundations of security which was focused on web app vulnerabilities and back then you saw that security on the internet was bad and going to get worse, but then you say you wouldn't have been able to predict how bad it was going to get over the next 13, 14 years. And so you've cited a few things, but maybe just at, in plain words, just how bad is it? I mean, are we screwed or or what?
2: <laughs> so back in 2007, back when I was an engineer at Google, the main concern that myself and my co-author at the time, Christoph Kern, uh, had was that software vulnerabilities could be used to conduct uh, cross-site scripting attacks, SQL injection attacks, and plague a whole bunch of online properties. At the time, MySpace had gotten taken down for a few hours because someone wrote a worm that spread through the social network so fast, uh, affected millions of profiles that they had to take the service down in order to uh, deal with it. Another thing that was happening back at that time is worms, worms like Code Red and Nimda and SQL Slammer, typically written by maybe one author, an amateur, you know, caused a lot of disruption on the internet. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I joined Google, Christoph was one of the folks, my author was one of the folks that influenced me to, to join the company. And after I joined the company, I had the absolute pleasure of meeting people like, uh, like Vint Sir. Vint was one of the two co-inventors of tcpip the set of protocols on which the internet runs and uh you know serendipitously we identified that i was his academic grad student because he was on my phd advisor's reading committee back when my phd advisor was getting his phd and Vint was also concerned about how software vulnerabilities could be used to take down online properties and could be used to take down malware or result in malware propagation. And so he was kind enough to write the foreword for the book and, and, and that was what we were concerned about at the time. And I think what we've seen now fast forwarding to you know 2013 and afterwards, given the number of mega breaches that have taken place, it's pretty clear that software vulnerabilities and malware are only two of the root causes that have led to these breaches. Um, if we look at other major causes of breaches, things like uh, phishing, unencrypted data, inadvertent employee mistakes, third-party compromise and abuse have grown to be additional root causes that have resulted in even bigger breaches than the kinds of things we were worried about back in 2007 when I when I was an engineer at Google.
1: Mm. So how did we get here? Was it just focusing on? too little, because like you said, there's six different causes or vectors and maybe the focus of the InfoSec community and those in software are trying to solve or route around these particular two things, but actually it was a much bigger surface area that we weren't securing. I just wonder how from 2007 to today, how we got to this point where there's been so many breaches and not just minor breaches, but these mega ones, and they all seem to happen for different reasons. How do you think we got here?
2: So the way that we got here was not a, it was, it was a, a gradual sort of thing. When we look at things like fishing, for instance, fishing you know, was an issue prior to 2007. The, the, the word fishing was first coined on a news group on America, on a, on a news group called uh, AO Hell, America Online Hell or whatnot. <laughs> Um, in in, I believe the late 90s. And phishing was always a a concern because of the fact that the initial protocols that the internet was built on, the email protocol, for instance, SMTP, the Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, would allow anybody on the ARPANET, the predecessor to the internet, to send an email. Anybody could send an email to anybody else claiming to be whoever they wanted to be because all the organizations, the initial universities and military organizations on the ARPANET trusted each other. But as the internet got commercialized, phishing started getting used more and more. It was initially used to try to lure people to fake banking sites, for instance, and try to get people to enter their username and password credentials for for banking sites. But what we've seen is that phishing has also evolved. Many attacks that take place these days are spear phishing attacks, where the, the attacker wants to you know, break into an organization. They figure out who is the administrative assistant to the CEO. They figure out how the email addresses are crafted and they send in these phishing emails to them. So so phishing was always an issue, but in terms of what you could do with phishing attacks, grew over time and has led to bigger and bigger breaches. Now where we talked about software vulnerabilities, we talked about unencrypted data has become more of of an issue you know back in 2003 when california was the first state to pass a data breach notification law the law was structured such that if somebody's name and some sensitive identifier about themselves was inadvertently exposed or stolen then that needs to be reported as as a breach and so there have been a whole bunch of breaches due to unencrypted data that have been getting reported since 2003 but most of them have been smaller in Nature, I would say that if we look at uh, another one of the root causes, third-party compromise and abuse, that, that really started becoming an issue in 2013. So when Target got breached back in 2013 and over 40 million credit card numbers were stolen, The attackers initially broke into a company by the name of Fazio Mechanical Services, which ran the heating and air conditioning for all of the Target retail stores, as well as a bunch of other retailers as well. But the attackers stole network credentials for Fazio Mechanical Services. And then because the Target and Fazio network were were tied together, uh, it was one flat network, the attackers were able to pivot from Fazio's network into Target's network. If we look at just the following year, in 2014, the JPMorgan Chase breach occurred because they had a third party by the name of Simcoe Data Systems that ran a website that was used to manage their charitable marathon races. The attackers leveraged vulnerability at Simcoe Data Systems to then break into JPMorgan Chase. And JPMorgan Chase was spending $250 million annually on their security in their bank. And the attackers were able to get out with $70 million names and email addresses, JP Morgan Chase customers, and then could target those consumers with spear phishing attacks. But it was another example where there was a a third party that was leveraged in order to conduct the attack. And so third parties have become more and more of an issue. Uh, And then finally, there's all kinds of other inadvertent employee mistakes that can be made. If we look at uh, cloud services these days, Um, If you just have one misconfiguration of your Amazon S3 buckets and you misconfigure the bucket with important data in it, sensitive data in it, to be public instead of private, well, that counts as a breach. So, you know, the root causes that, that I was concerned about, you know, did indeed grow over time. And you can kind of see the progression over the years. But what has been fairly stable over the past seven years is pretty much the overwhelming majority of breaches have been due to these six root causes. And they
1: have gotten far more sophisticated. Just thinking about phishing alone, I remember mm-hmm. when you would look at a phishing attempt and somebody would post a screen grab or whatever it was of somebody trying to fish them back in the day, and it was laughable how pathetic the attempt was to fool somebody. It would only work on, let's just say, the most vulnerable of internet users. And the phishing attempts today are so pointed, so well done. I just got one the other day, which was acting as if it was Google, contacted me about something uh, with my account. And it was actually, of course, a spoofed Google email address, but it linked back to a Google form. So it was a Google domain, right? A Google doc that has a form. And I got there as I just followed it, you know, with curl and stuff just to see where it was going to take me. Cause I could tell, but I still wasn't 100% sure. I was like, could this possibly be Google? I'm like, I don't think so, but maybe like I'm going to follow this trail and it took me a while i had to go three or four curls following redirects to find out no it was definitely just a phishing a attempt the sophistication i think of the of the bad actors maybe because there's so much more to gain has really ramped up over the years
2: that is exactly right in fact when i think about uh you know sophisticated phishing attacks yeah and in my book on big breaches i, I talk about a lot of big breaches but one that when that comes to mind is back in 2016 Probably one of the most interesting phishing attacks was conducted against uh, John Podesta, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager. And what happened there at that time is that the Democratic National Committee was under attack by the Russians. And so John Podesta got an email. Uh, they were using Google Apps. He gets an email, and it perfectly crafted, uh, looks exactly like the Google Apps password. Reset email. Basically, it told them, "Hey, look, we, we think somebody is uh, trying to attack you. You might want to change your your password." And so, so John Podesta uh, or one of his staff members, you know, gets the email and does the right thing. He doesn't, uh, or she doesn't, uh, you know, just kind of click on the phishing link in the email at the time, but rather forwards it to the IT department at the Democratic National Committee and asks them, "Hey." is this legitimate? Should I should I reset my password? So the IT department responds and said, yes, we are under attack. Please reset your password. Except what John Podesta or the relevant staff member did was they didn't go to the link that the IT staff member told them to go to, you know, google.com slash security or whatever it was. Instead, he went back to the original email that they got from the attacker and clicked on the link there. And the attackers were then able to log in to John Podesta's Google Apps email account and make off with sixty thousand emails that they then released. Pretty interesting phishing attack. And uh, you know, you know, today, as you could imagine, the Democratic National Committee uses uh, two-factor authentication, so that simply stealing the password is not good enough to steal emails in droves.
0: We actually linked out to something recently that says that's, that's not how 2FA works. And uh, they were reporting essentially that 2FA was a security measure when really it is a security measure, but not in the way they were saying it It was basically that 2FA is meant to prevent attackers from masquerading as you, not to prevent fake sites masquerading as real sites. It's sort of a, a backwards thing, but 2FA enables you to be you rather than somebody else being you because it requires multiple factors speaking to a security expert here, of course, but you know, it, 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 it disables the ability for someone else to be you if they have multiple factors that say, this is you, this is who you are, because these devices have consensus right. that they agree they're you.
2: That's right. And there's actually many different flavors of two-factor authentication, uh, some better than others. So when you log into a website with two-factor authentication, you know you have to present your username and your password, but you'll also have a, say, two-factor code sent to your mobile phone and you have to enter the the four digit six digit eight digit code whatever whatever it is Mm -hmm. but there's still many ways for the attackers to beat that and so for instance if a online site is relying on sms in order to send two factor codes one of the things that the attackers can do is what's called the sim swapping attack where what they'll do is they'll call up your cell phone provider wireless carrier and they will post it to be you and they'll use publicly searchable information about you, your name, your address, your phone number, you know, how many, how many pets you have, how many kids you have, whatever, right? Whatever they can gather from Facebook. And if they can figure out what is the verbal passcode that you use for your account with your wireless carrier, they can convince your wireless carrier to switch your phone number to use a SIM card, and a phone that the attacker owns instead of your actual phone. And once the attacker does that, once they have SIM swapped and taken control of your wireless carrier account, then they can get all the two-factor codes that are sent to you when you try to log into your bank or whatever. So there are many ways of doing two-factor. One way is, is SMS, but it does have that vulnerability that makes you susceptible to SIM swapping. There are additional ways to do two-factor authentication where you use an app like Google Authenticator or Duo or whatnot, where you get a six-digit code that's generated by an app on your phone. And attackers will not be able to say if they can steal your SMSs, they, they won't be able to get visibility into what is the code there but it ends up being more secure against that channel of attack. On the other hand, though, there's this concept of what is a completely non-fishable defense. To an extent, whenever you go to a website to log in, if you have to enter your username and your password and say a two-factor code, you can imagine that any attacker can start up an imposter site that will ask you for the same three things, the username, the password, and the two-factor code irrespective of how that two-factor code got to you or was generated. So one of one of the challenges with these authenticator apps is that attackers can still set up imposter phishing sites, but there is a way, there is an even better two-factor, which I could tell you about. Does that make sense? Oh yeah.
1: Yes. So the apps like Google Authenticator, Authy, et cetera, they are on a rotating key, right? Like that, that code rotates every N seconds. I'm not sure how, I've never implemented it uh, as a developer. I'm not sure how the server side syncs up with that code. And, and But setting that aside, if somebody were to fish you and get you to enter all three things, they would have N seconds to then go and sign into you, sign into your actual email or whatever it is with that code before it expires. And I think that N is like 60 seconds. I'm not sure what it is. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Please tell definitely. us the best way because I'll just do that.
2: Yeah, that's right. So, and by the way, sixty seconds is, is a lot of time for an attacker yeah. site to, you know, receive the two-factor code and then do an automated authentication into your totally. account, right? And then transfer money out or whatever it is. So, time, so, sixty yeah. seconds is a, is a lot of time. And, and by the way, for for those folks that are software developers in the audience here as listeners, there's actually you know two different standards, two two Internet RFCs that are used to design that kind of authentication. There's What's called uh, HOTP and TOTP. Uh, HOTP uses a uh, an HMAC, uh, a hashed message authentication code, to uh, generate the two factor codes, and then TOTP uses time, so it doesn't just rely on a seed, but there is a synchronized uh, clock in between the authenticator and the website. So there are you know two ways to do that, but at the end of the day, it is possible to get fished by Having a in uh, any form that accepts a username, password, and a two-factor code. So the most secure way to do two-factor authentication is to use what's called a security key. A security key is a piece of um, tamper hardware which you have to either plug in to your to your laptop or your mobile phone. Or many mobile phones have uh, you know secure enclaves and whatnot on it that can be used to generate the appropriate two-factor authentication information. But the idea there is that in order to log in, you provide your username and your password. And what a website checks for is the ability for your security key, whether it be something like a a Yubico YubiKey or whether it be your, your mobile phone to generate the two-factor code, but not in a form field that you have to manually enter. And that is a non-fishable form of defense against phishing. And if you look at that, that particular set of uh, security te- key technology, when Google deployed that, I believe in 2017 or, or 2018, I can't remember exactly which it was, but you know they deployed it for you know, tens of thousands of employees And when they looked at it the next year, there were absolutely no phishing attacks. And both Google and Salesforce have used security keys to eliminate phishing as a root cause of any potential breach against against themselves. And I I really hope that more organizations learn from that experience and leverage security key technology to eliminate phishing uh, instead of having it continue to be a, a major root cause of breaches. This episode
0: is brought to you by our friends at Retool retool helps you build internal tools fast and easy from startups to fortune 500s the world's best teams use retool to power their internal apps assemble your app in just a few minutes by dragging and dropping from pre-built components connect to most databases or anything with a rest graphql or grpc api retool empowers you to work with all your data sources seamlessly in one single app retool is highly hackable so you're never limited by what's available out of the box if you can write it in javascript and an api you can build it in retool you can use their cloud service or host it on-prem for yourself. Learn more and try it free at retool.com/changelog. Again, retool.com/changelog. So now there's several breaches we could talk about: big ones, small ones, a couple of recent, but there's some. Ways in, what are the common ways in and what are some of the most recent breaches? I know Capital One happened recently, Equifax and SolarWinds is ongoing, but where do you begin to sort of break down the vectors into these breaches in particular?
2: Sure. So the six major technical root causes of attacks and breaches are phishing, malware, software vulnerabilities, unencrypted data, third-party compromise or abuse, and inadvertent employee mistakes and if we talk about for instance the solar winds hack and i'll mention that for those of you that have heard of the solar winds hack that occurred in or rather that was announced in december 2020 you may have heard that it's being compared to a digital pearl harbor but i would say that there's some major differences about the solar winds hack from pearl harbor So first of all, Pearl Harbor was a complete surprise when it happened. And if we look at the SolarWinds hack, the way that attackers broke into many government organizations was using SolarWinds and their software as a third party. If we look at third party compromises, there have been third party compromises going back to 2013 and 2014, like I happened to mention the target Mm -hmm. breach was initially caused by a third party. The JPMorgan Chase breach was initially caused by a third party. Uh, Facebook has had a number of hacks uh, and breaches over time in part due to third parties like Cambridge Analytica. So third party compromise and abuse is nothing new. In addition, if we look at attacks against the government, if we go back to the Office of Personnel Management breach in which 20 million government employees were stolen, the government getting targeted and hacked by foreign adversaries is also nothing new. And then thirdly, if we look at hacks that have been attributed to the Russian government or organizations that are working for the Russian government, that's also nothing new. If we look at the Yahoo breaches that were announced in uh, 2016, we should keep in mind that there were four Russian hackers responsible for that. Two of which were ex FSB agents. FSB is the new KGB. Hmm. So, If we look at those aspects of the hack, there have been components of that taking place for years. And I think if there is anything that is new and novel, it is that the scale of the attack was probably larger than in the past based on some measures. And I would also say that it was a case in which a, a third party was leveraged to hack multiple government organizations. Whereas in the past, there's typically been one third party used to hack some major target, not multiple major targets. So I'd say that uh, the SolarWinds hack is uh, not, a, not a digital harbor because it shouldn't have come as a complete surprise. I think the other aspect of the SolarWinds hack that's interesting is that beyond it having all the previous components, the Winds hack, the carnage of it, right? Or the after effects, you know, comparing it to Pearl Harbor, when Pearl Harbor got attacked, all the, all the carnage was immediately observable. Mm-hmm. And if we think about the Winds hack, I think that, the impact of it is going to be understood over time, months or years, not immediately, the day after. So those are just some of my thoughts on the, the solar wind hack. And I think the other thing to keep in mind, I'd say, if there's a third thing to talk about with regards to solar winds, it's that uh, based on you know new information that has come out, um, you know, 30% of those organizations that were impacted were impacted by channels other than solar winds, and it just happened to be the case that we are discovering the hack and attack in a particular order. The order in which the foreign nation state adversaries conducted the attack may have been, may have been wildly different. So Solon's hack is, is certainly interesting but the components of it are not new. The scale has been larger, we'll learn more over time and we'll also learn how much solar winds was or was not at the heart of it over time once everything gets pieced together.
1: It must be difficult to go back forensically and uncover the truth. I mean, surely there'll be things that we will never know for sure, order of events, you know, how things went down. But I guess with digital, in the digital world, we can at least, you know, timestamp and, and get that kind of chain of custody stuff a little bit better than, than they used to. But it just... The work of going back and forensically discovering what all went down and by whom and et cetera has to be deep and tedious and probably rewarding work if you can dig anything out of that history.
2: Yeah, the forensics involved in um, understanding how breaches have occurred and attributing them to particular attackers is is, yeah. is indeed very uh, interesting, uh, painstaking painstaking work. And if I think back to you know a bunch of the breaches that that we discussed in the Big Breaches book, there's certainly some attacks, for instance, the attack against Yahoo, the attacks against OPM. There weren't enough, there wasn't enough forensic information to piece together how the attackers even got in. It's suspected that phishing and malware were the two of the, the key vectors, two of the key root causes. But it's unclear now. Mm-hmm. There's other breaches. For instance, we looked at the Capital One breach, uh, in which um, you know a single former Amazon employee was able to leverage a server-side request forgery vulnerability and a firewall misconfiguration. Um, the investigation there was very speedy and happened because of the fact that. Uh, Erratic, who is the which is the code name, the handle of the attacker that that got in, she left her resume in the same GitLab repository where she archived the hundred million credit applications really? that she stole out of the Amazon S three buckets, and so obviously with her resume there, you know, investigators were very easily able to to follow up and and, and make the attribution. You know, I think whether it's whether it's, uh, cyber criminal or whether it's the foreign nation adversaries, you know, the authorities are always looking for the breadcrumbs and they're always looking for the mistake that the attacker makes because nobody's perfect. And so any attacker, you know, if you study them long enough, you study their trail long enough, you'll find something. But mm-hmm. sometimes they just need a mistake. Yeah, that's a big mistake. The whole time we're
0: having this conversation, I'm a gigantic fan of Mr. Robot and Elliot. And so that I, I just think about how Elliot would would act in terms of a hack or a root kid or a malware attack or a 2FA spoof or all these different things that he had did during this show. And I just think about it like that. Like he's the kind of person in that show at least where he didn't make mistakes or not many mistakes. But that is the truth, though. You can follow somebody long enough and you see, you know, because they got limited time, right? They got limited time to do a breach or to steal that code to, you know, to, to face spoof that person or whatever it might be, you know, yeah. and they're going to slip up somehow, some way. I'm curious, though, about that resume. If if it just wasn't good enough, like it wasn't really her. Because forensically, as a hacker, you can fake mistakes, too. And you can frame somebody. I'm not saying she was framed. I'm just saying that just seems so How obvious. Like my resume is chilling in this GitLab repository. It just seems <laughs> too pointed. I don't know. It seems like, yeah, like she couldn't have been that. <laughs>
2: right dumb. You know, so I'll chat I'll about a couple of things. First, <laughs> I am as we're having this discussion, I'm reminded of a story that someone once told me about an interview with an FBI agent. And the FBI agent says, you know, to catch most criminals, we wait for them to make the mistake, and then we, and then we catch them. And then, so the interview asks, well, so what about the criminal that doesn't make a mistake? And the FBI agent says, oh, well, we don't catch them. Mm. So that, that's one story that, that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. But going back to this particular Capital One breach and uh, erratic, you know, I agree that if it was just the resume being in the GitLab repository, you could look at that as somebody might've tried to frame them. Uh, of course, in this particular case, she was tweeting about the attack oh. publicly on Twitter <laughs> as she was doing the attack. And there was some concern also about just the, the, the mental stability of the attacker mm-hmm. in this case. But uh, it appears that she created enough evidence um, and even posted things on Twitter saying, uh, it's, it's the equivalent, of, I've strapped a bomb to my chest or something like this.
1: Mm. What was her MO? Like what, what was her motivation? Why was she doing it?
2: I do not know. Okay. I think she was probably technically capable of doing it. You know, she might've been mentally unstable, yeah. might've wanted attention this seemed like a great way to get it. I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't want to want to want to want to
1: Well, I thought you know, a lot of people will write, you know, masterminds, you know, in, in the fictions, at least, you know, they like to, they like to explain why they're doing what they're doing. Right. Especially if the goal is attention. A lot of times the
0: monologue is so famous.
1: I wonder if she came out and gave her monologue. Yeah. Cause exactly. I didn't follow the, I didn't know this was, this was single attacker who was also tweeting and leaving a paper trail on GitLab. So I was just wondering if maybe she published her motivations, but.
2: Well, I haven't I haven't heard them yet, as of um, you know, us writing the the Big Breaches book and the chapter on the Capital One Breach, which which I thought was, you know, pretty technically interesting as well. I, I don't believe the, the monologue appeared, but who knows, maybe maybe if it does show up, then we'll have to post something on the book's website yeah. I'm pointing to
1: it. Second edition. Mm-hmm.
2: So Capital
1: One, this was an ex-employee who had, did she have insider information about this particular vulnerability or did she just find it by, you said there was a misconfigured firewall and then there was also a a server-side vulnerability that she was uh, taking advantage of. Was this a case where she had knowledge of that system and so it gave her the advantage or was she just out there fuzzing it and seeing what she could find?
2: So, so I think in this particular case, she was an ex Amazon employee and she probably had uh, you know, technical skills and knowledge based on my research and study of the attack. Uh, I don't believe she had any insider knowledge about capital one. I think it was revealed that she was um, ex- probing not only capital one, but a bunch of other companies as well. Gotcha, And uh, you know, simply knew enough how, how cloud systems work. And, and, and what she had identified is that Capital One had a uh, Amazon EC2 instance, pretty much a virtual machine that was running an application that had a server-side request forgery vulnerability. And basically what that means is that she was able to send requests to that EC2 instance and the EC2 instance would query Amazon's metadata service and then relay the responses onto the attacker. So from a, a poor from a, a pure computer science perspective, you know, the Amazon metadata service is required so that Things that are running on Amazon and EC2 instances can even ask things like, "Well, was my IP address?" You know, it's 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 running on cloud. It shifts from machine to machine. You need to know things like your IP address, and uh, the the intention is that well, only the EC2 instances should be able to query the metadata service, because they can also ask for things like security credentials. And what happened in this case is that because Erratic she identified that the EC2 instance had this. Server-side request for vulnerability, uh, she was able to ask questions like, hey, could you please give me the security credentials for a whole bunch of Amazon buckets um, that are part of Capital One's uh, deployment? And the EC2 instance would query the metadata service. The metadata service would say, sure, I'm happy to ask, give you the security credentials. So it would give the security credentials to the EC2 instance, to Capital One's legitimate EC2 instance. But the problem is that it would relay the information back to the attacker, any random person on the internet. Mm. And once Erratic was able to get those security credentials, she pretty much cached those in her local Amazon, you know, client uh, command line. Mm -hmm. And once she had those credentials, any queries that she made to the Capital One Amazon S3 buckets, there was no way for S3 to tell the difference between the attacker versus a legitimate program that was trying to access the the hundred million credit applications. So once she got the credentials, she asked the Amazon S3 service for capital one for all that data and it happily handed it back to her. Mm -hmm. And that's how that attack happened.
1: Fascinating stuff. How about the Equifax breach? Because that was also credit records. I think that was more like 150 million, something like that. And, uh, I had the pleasure of being a part of that one <laughs> as one of the
2: the millions who got their stuff leaked. So yeah, I'm happy to talk about the the Equifax breach. Um, the Equifax breach, if, if you uh, have read about this particular breach in the media, what one associates and attributes to it is the Apache Struts vulnerability that was used to initially get into to Equifax. So basically, in uh, March of uh, the era that the breach occurred, there was a Apache uh, struts vulnerability. It was a high severity vulnerability, which allowed you know, any attacker on the internet to request that the server run commands of the attacker's choice and it would happily do that remote code execution uh, vulnerability. And uh, there was a patch available very, very quickly. But there's a lot of interesting technical details and there was a lot more to the breach than just how how they got in. So what had happened is within a fairly short period of the vulnerability, the Apache Struts vulnerability being announced, you know, it was quite observable that the vulnerable server at Equifax was getting queries from Chinese attributed IP addresses probing as to whether or not it's vulnerable. And the particular probes would do things like inject a HTTP header that had a command to run instead of, you know, having typical header information. Hmm. And it would, uh, you know, these probes would do things like change the current directory to uh, a shared memory device, drop a file into shared memory so that it wouldn't touch disk, so it couldn't get picked up by antivirus scanners, and uh, then change the permissions of that file and shared memory to be executable and then run the thing. So, so th- those probes occurred. You know, I think at around the same time, the Equifax vulnerability management team had had basically scanned Equifax's servers to see, okay, what servers do we have that are vulnerable to this thing? But the problem was they were using a McAfee vulnerability scanner that was end of life and was not being as actively maintained. And that scanner was also only scanning the root directories of the servers. It was not scanning subdirectories. And the particular server that was vulnerable at Equifax, the vulnerability was present in a subdirectory. So the vulnerability scanning team at Equifax, while they, while they sent out the notes to say, you know please patch our vulnerable patch Struts servers, um the scans came back negative saying there's no there's no vulnerabilities um so their their team might have thought oh this must all be patched in reality the scanner was having a false negative mm. so what happened uh, a couple months after that is that additional chinese attributed requests hit the still vulnerable apache server and you know basically established a footprint they you know got some files and that formed their beachhead for their attack. They got in that one machine, they started scanning, they identified that there were, I don't know, 60 you know, other machines or databases that they could query, um, but you know, they didn't have credentials for those databases. So what happened is the attackers found a file, a configuration file that had unencrypted credentials for the databases, and that was one way that they got information from the databases. <laughs> Another thing that the attackers did is they took advantage of a, a SQL injection vulnerability. Uh, so while everybody knows of the Apache Struts vulnerability with, you know, with associated with Equifax, what fewer people know is that there there was a SQL injection vulnerability in one of the databases, and the attackers used one of their web shells that they planted to exploit that SQL injection vulnerability and steal data out of one of the other databases. So. Uh, there, there were many things that had to go wrong. It was not just the Apache Struts vulnerability that led to the Equifax breach.
0: Mm. It seems pretty easy to point to third-party issues. Like it seems like that's where the the trust is – or where it breaks down. It's like you've got this trust between the primary party and some sort of third party and some sort of silly mistake. But it seems like the third party, I suppose, vulnerability is just the entry point, not the not the problem. Like it's part of the problem, but they find some sort of vulnerability there. And then they have experience and know how to masquerade and into and query databases or find files or set something into RAM instead of on disk. You know, like a lot of inner workings of how security measures are watched, monitored, and whatnot, not just simply, oh, I, you know, hacked a open source dependency and boom, I'm in. It's it's much more than that.
2: Yes, that's right. So I would say that uh, you know, third party Compromises, third-party abuse, you know, is a very significant point of entry. And you know, as we've talked about, Target, JPMorgan Chase, Equifax were third-party components and third-party companies that were were leveraged as as part of the attack. I'll mention though, that it's not always third-party. So, for instance, if we look at Facebook, for instance, there was a there was a breach that they suffered in twenty eighteen where tens of millions of access tokens were stolen, uh, access tokens which would allow people to log in as various Facebook users. And uh, in that case, there were there were three vulnerabilities that were used altogether, not all third party. The three vulnerabilities that that came together was one, there was a so the feature that got that got abused at Facebook was the Facebook view as functionality, which allows you to view your Facebook profile as a member of the public. And, uh, you know, in in the first vulnerability, the view as feature allowed somebody to incorrectly post a video. The second vulnerability was one in which the the video uploader incorrectly generated an access token that had the permissions of the Facebook mobile app. And then the third vulnerability was that, you know, the the access token was generated not for, for the user as a viewer, but for the user you know, whom was being looked up. And so all those three things came together in a much more sophisticated uh, attack in which three vulnerabilities had to be be leveraged together, not all of which were were, were third party. I believe there were first, first party code there. So, you know, I'd say that both first party and third party vulnerabilities are important and significant when it comes to breaches.
1: Yeah.
2: And by the way, let me mention that Facebook, you know, did a very nice and thorough investigation in that 2018 breach. It was great to see the transparency that Facebook had when they investigated that. You know, I honestly think to, to just put a little bit of a view on this, perspective on this, I think, you know, looking at Facebook 2016, 2017, and before, there were certainly a bunch of abuses of the platform that were taking place where attackers were able to use the fact you know, APIs at Facebook could just be queried very easily. And once they shut all of those other paths down, like if I had to, if I had to guess, and this is just a guess, that this particular attacker that used these three vulnerabilities in the Facebook US profile bug, if they wanted to steal information from Facebook profiles, they were forced to then do something much more sophisticated. But I really like the fact that Facebook was was very transparent and you know posted uh, some of the technical details of that in in a blog post, and so I'd say that's the authoritative
1: information. Yeah,
2: and you know, I can't, if I if I was even slightly inaccurate, my apologies for that. But there's a, a great Facebook post on it.
1: It's amazing how more sophisticated is a nation state or a a highly motivated actor in 2021, or even back when this one happened, as compared to where we started this conversation with. The Sammy MySpace hack of 2005, you know the the era of worms and viruses that were either accidental or for fun, and they got out of control, or they were maybe malicious in some cases. But just sure grown up since then, you know. Like that th- this three vulnerability combo to get into the Facebook thing, it's that's an amazingly impressive hack, isn't it?
2: That is, that is a much more sophisticated hack. And I think that, I, I mean, I was impressed with uh, Facebook's uh, speed at which they were able to diagnose and debug and troubleshoot and identify that particular, you know, the root causes behind that. You know, I I would say that, you know, thinking about all these breaches over the years, there's certainly been a bunch of breaches where, you know, as in the case of the semi-worm, one cross-site scripting vulnerability could have been leveraged to pretty much take down my space for hours, or the one Apache source vulnerability that led to the Equifax breach, you know, was an initial point to, to get in. We have seen the attacks become more sophisticated as per the Facebook example that we talked about. But if I think about the capital one breach, right. You know, uh, a server-side request forgery vulnerability and uh, you know, firewall misconfiguration, like that was, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, not as sophisticated and done by by one person. So there's a saying in the security community that attacks only get better. And I'd say, you know, the simple attacks and what people can do with one vulnerability, like those issues still exist. But now on top of that, we have to deal with more sophisticated attackers at the same time.
0: This episode of the change log is brought to you by render render is a unified platform to build and run all your apps and websites with free SSL, a global CDN, private networks, and auto-deploys from Git. They handle everything from simple static sites to complex applications with dozens of microservices. If you're a developer or a founder that's frustrated with AWS's complexity or Heroku's high costs, you owe it to yourself to use the $100 in free credits they're giving our listeners to give Render a try. Render is built for modern applications and offers everything you need out of the box. One-click scaling, zero downtime deploys, built-in SSL, private networking, managed databases, secrets and configuration management, persistent block storage, and infrastructure as code. The Roku customers running production and staging workloads typically see cost reductions of over 50% after switching to Render. Here's the best part. We work closely with the team at Render to ensure you have zero risk by giving you $100 in free credits. Plus, they're going to assign a world-class engineer to your account to offer guidance and answer any questions you have. When you're ready to transition your infrastructure, they'll be there to help you with that too. Automate your cloud hosting with Render at render.com changelog. Get $100 in free credits to try the Render platform plus a world-class engineer assigned to your account to guide you along the way Just send an email to our special email changelog at render.com to get access to those free credits. All that begins at render.com slash changelog.
1: O'Neill, you have painted a bleak picture of Swiss cheese out there with all these holes and a world of just cyber criminals doing what they do and breaching all of our large and small organizations. Where do we go from here? What do we do about it? You have in this book a list of seven habits of what you call highly effective security people or organizations. So it's not all just uh, storytelling. You have some prescription here as well. How can we route around or solve the problems that we're seeing out there?
2: Yes, yes. Thank you for asking. So in writing the Big Breaches book, it's not all about how these breaches have happened. But if you look at it, the book focuses, half of the book focuses on the breaches. The other half of the book focuses on what do we do about it? And how do we get to a better state of the world? And, uh, you know, I think that, as you mentioned, we have a chapter in the book, the second half of the book starts off with a chapter on what are the right habits. And so myself and my co-author, Rudy Albayari, were both fans of Stephen Covey uh, and his seven habits for highly effective people, which you can use for personal development. And so what we thought we'd do is come out with what are the seven habits of highly effective security for organizations and so some of our habits uh, are similar and build on what Stephen Covey talked about first for instance our first habit is to be uh, proactive prepared and paranoid and uh, Stephen Covey and his work also focuses on being proactive and so but we think that being prepared and being paranoid is uh, you know the right way to code um, one of our one of our other habits is to make sure that you you build and design security in. Security is a property. It's a characteristic similar to quality. You can't exactly, you know, build a product and then launch it and then try to make it a quality product afterwards. Quality is something that's got to be inherent and built in. And uh, security is just a type of quality and needs to be built in from the beginning. We also believe that, uh, you know, in order to achieve security, one of our habits is that you've got to automate I think if you try to rely on your users or developers or employees to to try to get things right, and they have to manually take some right step every time, it's going to be very hard. So we believe in, in heavy automation. And so, you know, relying heavy automation and finding vulnerabilities is very important, which I can talk about in just a second. Another habit that we believe in is to measure, measure security, measure it both quantitatively and qualitatively. And then finally, we also have a habit around continuous improvement you know in in Stephen Covey's book he talks about sharpening the saw make sure that you are always getting better and always sharpening that blade in our corresponding book chapter we talked about the importance of embracing continuous improvement and make things one percent better every day and over time that'll compound like you wouldn't believe so so those are those are some of the habits but I'd be also happy to talk a little bit about, um, you know, in the second half of the book, we, we give advice for how to go about addressing the root cause of software vulnerabilities.
1: Mm. Let's start with a, a couple of these habits and then we'll go from there. So measure security. Can you just, for instance, what does that look like for a software team?
2: So for a software team, one thing that you can measure is how many vulnerabilities are you say finding in your code with a scanner whether it be a static analysis scanner whether it be dynamic analysis scanner whether it be based on penetration testing that you do whether it be based on bug bounty programs where you have external researchers trying to find vulnerabilities I think that one thing that you can look at is what are the number of vulnerabilities that you're you're finding, say, using the automated means? And uh, the way to look at that is that's the tip of the iceberg. You know, the the scanners that we have are better than they've ever been before, but uh, they're still not as sophisticated as, say, a cryptography expert reviewing the guts of your authentication code. And... If the scanners are finding vulnerabilities in your code, it means that you probably got a lot under the tip of the iceberg to worry about. You know, it, it's also like another example is that you know if you think about the scanner as a flashlight, you shine a flashlight in a room, you see a cockroach. Chances are that there's a lot more cockroaches than mm-hmm. just what you see with the flashlight. And so it's important, of course, to get to a point where you know you get where scanners are not identifying vulnerabilities in your code. But once that's done, you know, chances are there's still more security bugs in your, in your code and you've got to then start, you know, using uh, white box pen testers um, and or uh, bug bounty programs and other uh, things where you have sophisticated humans looking at, at the code to find the additional vulnerabilities.
1: So one thing about security is that you're never finished with it just because you're never finished with the software, right? I mean... Any successful software company has more software coming down the pipeline every single day. Let's say we get past the shine the light in the room phase and you don't or you keep shining the light on a routine basis and there's no cockroaches there. And you're at the a phase where you're saying, well, we need a sophisticated third party auditors, pen testers that we're going to hire what are best practices around that? These can be expensive things. The software is changing, right? They could finish their audit and then you introduce a vulnerability the next day that you don't know about. Is there like best practices around measurement? Like, well, you should have a third party audit once a year, or six months, or you should have a part of your team that's like the security team that goes around the rest of the organization and test things. What are people doing out there that is working well?
2: So I think that uh, security audits are are you know good activities do them, you know, once or twice a year, they'll they'll test for basic hygiene. You know, that said, if you really want to have a handle on things, I think taking a continuous approach is indeed the way to go. Because like you said, you could have a, an audit, you could do a pen test, and then, you know, a new vulnerability can get introduced the next day. And so there's a set of, um, you know, new tools that are, that are available on the market where they don't take the approach of, say, doing security tests after specific parts in the development pipeline. Rather, you know, we're in a world where we want to have agile development, we want to be continuously releasing, we want to be continuously pushing code. And so, you know, the point-in-time test model of security is becoming an old model. And a much better model is to take the approach that you wanna have continuous monitoring for the security of your code, and you wanna have observability that uh, provides you with kind of constant security monitoring. So for instance, uh, DeepFactor is an example of a observability tool that will monitor your code for security vulnerabilities uh, pre-production so that as you're going through your development, as you're going through your test, as you're going through your staging, If you link in some new library and that library is old or unpatched, like it'll let you know right away. You don't have to wait to the point that you go get your software pen tested to find that out. You can identify that much earlier. And by the way, the cost to fix it is much, much less when you identify it earlier and right away, rather than waiting for a a penetration test. Mm -hmm.
1: There's a divide between InfoSec people and developer people. And, and I think that's part of the problem. And I understand like there's only so many things that you could focus on as a human. And so there are people who are you know generally considered InfoSec. These are your penetration testers, your security researchers, your audit firms, um, cryptography people. They're kind of like in this group. And then there's like developer people who are focusing on like JavaScript and Node.js or they're writing Go code. They're talking about new features and APIs and stuff like that. And there are those who float kind of back and forth. But when you talk about security first, building it right in, you know, starting with it similar way you start with software quality, right? Or uh, application quality a lot of times the people who are doing that coding just don't have that expertise, right? Like they don't understand what is a best practice around how to do SQL queries in a way that's not injectable or whatever it happens to be, whatever that particular attack surface is. How do we bridge that gap? How do we get like these people to be the same people or at least sitting next to each other, digitally speaking maybe, Because I do see kind of separate communities and sometimes they even look at each other in ways like with the side eye, which is kind of strange, but Mm -hmm. like, there are those who float in between. I feel like I've kind of done a little bit of that, sit in the middle. But I feel like if, if we can get the software developers more equipped with the security knowledge, either at the outset or ongoing, and maybe get the InfoSec people more equipped with the ability to write some software... Not, not saying y'all can't write software, but, you know, so we could have one big group. Is that something you think would be advantageous to the software community?
2: Yeah, so I think you asked a great question, and you you, you started uh, providing an answer in the right direction, Okay. right? So I think the, the old traditional view is you have the development team, and you have the information security team, and they're... They're separate teams, right? And uh, you know, in that kind of old model, like the information security team can be perceived of as like the department of no, uh, which is not what you want, right? Right, I think uh, a, a more modern view, a better view, is that the information security team exists to serve enablement of the business, and the philosophical approach should be yes and how. Yes, we want to launch, how do we do that in a way? that mitigates risk, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that the mentality should be be yes and how. And within an information security team, you may have an application security team or a product security team. And I think that team should be staffed with people who used to be engineers and developers solely. I mean, I I myself, I'm a software engineer, my background, my first job uh, at Bell Communications Research years ago was as a software engineer. And you know, in, in the Foundations of Security book that I co-authored together with Christoph Kern years ago, you know, the focus was: I look, I'm I'm somebody who's developed software for a living, but now I just want to make it secure. And I think that's the right uh, kind of team that you need. And mm. the goal of that team, I believe, should be that the goal of the application security team should be to enable the developers to be able to write code securely. And give them the tools and frameworks that they need to write code securely, such that they can monitor it, but don't necessarily need to be a approval gate. Right. And so, if the application security team can say, you know, bring observability tools like Deep Factor and you know, get folks to use those tools then developers can monitor the security of their own software themselves. And perhaps all that stuff can be aggregated together so that you know, a CISO can look at the full picture and try to understand, okay, what is the security posture of our code base? How likely vulnerable is it or not? Mm-hmm. What kind of additional tools should we invest in to further help the developers? Another model that I've seen worked well is where if you look, if you have a large engineering organization and a relatively small application security team, what you can do is encourage one of the developers in each of the development teams to kind of be the local security czar, where they go through some training, maybe they know more about some of these tools, they may be able to exploit, identify and exploit SQL injection or cross-site scripting vulnerabilities of their own, and they kind of serve as the, the, the local security DNA in that, in that dev team, but just coordinate with the, the more central application security team. Mm-hmm. So I think that if we can set up models like that. It's a much more progressive, collaborative way in which to go about uh, achieving secure or more secure software than would exist otherwise with a more traditional model.
1: Yeah, I like that. And I know, I mean, that's inside specific organizations, which is really where we mostly operate. I've seen also where we operate kind of in the online spaces out there in the communities. There's been efforts to bridge these gaps. I appreciate people who are uh, trying to do that work. We know that there was a a similar dev and ops gap, you know, where the, the developers write the software and the operations people put it into production. <laughs> and then there was, you know, DevOps. Hey, this, let's let's get together. And let's break down that barrier a little bit. And now we're seeing uh, DevSecOps, which is a terrible term, but it's kind of like, right, developers, security, and ops. Let's bring everybody together and, uh, and work together. And I think I don't like that particular DevSecOps term because it's kind of strange, but I'll, I appreciate the movement there and the, the efforts being put in place to really break down that divide and build better, build better products together.
2: I think the collaboration is key. The collaboration is key in order to result in more more security and better resilience and more fault tolerance and all kinds of other good things that comes out of the collaboration.
0: Right. Well, something you mentioned earlier, Jared. I think to this divide between these two camps or maybe three camps based on DevSecOps is this. You know, the collaboration happens when uh, when respect and empathy are in place. Right. So if as a developer I can empathize with my security counterparts or as a security counterpart, I can empathize with my developer counterparts to have respect for one another's sort of surface area of concern, so to speak. Mm-hmm. If there is that, then collaboration can take place. But when you get the side eye, as you'd mentioned, well, that shows a lack of respect and a lack of empathy. And what we need to work on is like those, I guess, fundamental human traits like empathy and respect right. for one another's work to collaborate better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a difficult situation because on the face of it, like one person is writing the code and the other person is trying to break into that code. You know, like just by the just by what you're tasked to do, you're kind of set at odds with each other, aren't you? Because everybody's one person's exploit is somebody else's vulnerable software in the case that we're talking about software vulnerabilities and not these other ways we find out people get in many other ways anyways. So there's lots to think about. What about these other vectors, ways that we can fight things like unencrypted data, third-party compromise? That one seems so difficult and something that is happening more and more now that we have all these mergers happening. I just can't imagine you know, bringing in a third party through a merger or something. And Now you have these two disparate companies and code bases and infrastructures and now they're acting as one. I could just see how there's so many problems with that. Even when the third party becomes, you know, a subsidiary to the first party, these things that are happening all the time in startup companies and enterprises all around the world. What are some ways that you can combat or guard against third party compromise?
2: Well, I'd be happy to comment on that. And before I do, let me. I just wanted to comment, you know, we talked about things like respect and empathy being important in between teams. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to, to, to chime in with one mm-hmm. additional One additional uh, characteristic, I think the characteristic of accountability is important. I think that if the application security team and the security people are accountable when there's a software vulnerability or a compromise, I think that's the wrong model. I think that developers should be held accountable for the security of the code, just like they're held accountable for the quality of their code, And if pretty much the application security team are there to support them and help them, then even though to an extent, it might seem like their fundamental goals might be at odds. If you set the accountability on the software developers, then it in fact, uh, you know, merges them back together because then in order for them to achieve the secure software which they're accountable for mm. they'd love to get the help of the third of uh, the application security
0: team right because they're accountable so. to secure software not putting a security flaw in there right their their accountability so putting the security flaw in there is is a byproduct of just making software it's going to happen bugs right they're going to happen a flaw's going to happen something's going to happen but the accountability isn't on being a human being who can write code and not create a security flaw it's the accountability to a secure application that requires a team, not just an individual without flaws or problems. It's an individual that has counterparts that can help them through that and create secure software. Hmm.
2: Yes, yes, that's exactly right. And I think though there, you know, if you look at very large organizations like banks, for instance, where they're regulated by, you know, by, by all kinds of regulators, right? I think there is another aspect of this where you know, the security team usually becomes the one that has to report information into what what eventually gets to the regulators. And so, you know, there has to be some monitoring, there has to be some validation, because, you know, at the end of the day, everyone's butts are on the line. But I do think that where you set that accountability and how the monitoring and validation is viewed and perceived is uh, important. It's not that the security team uh, want to do that because they want to be a pain in the neck. They want to keep the company out of regulatory trouble. So I think there's a lot of, you know, interesting aspects here. Yeah. To go on to the second part of the question with regards to some of the other root causes, you know, we chatted about you know various kinds of third parties and we chatted about malware. Let me just give one example that comes to mind. So in the book we have a chapter on the Marriott breach, in which 383 million customer records were stolen. There were 5 million passport numbers that were stolen. The reason that occurred was because Marriott acquired Starwood. right? And the combination of the two basically was going to make the world's largest hotel chain. And it turned out that Starwood had been compromised by a piece of malware a year before the acquisition talks even started. And the malware footprint and breach had not been identified, not before the acquisition, not during the acquisition, but pretty much after the acquisition. So you've got to keep in mind that any third party company that you're thinking about acquiring is gonna become a first party. And if they're breached, well, you're breached too. And in both uh, Marriott and Starwood's case, there was a lot of susceptibility to malware. But uh, you know, I, I mentioned that because it's an example where, there's many kinds of third parties. Third parties are not always just suppliers. Mm-hmm. Uh, third parties can be entire companies. And, you know, with regards to, to advice to deal with that, one of the things that I talk about in the book chapter in which I give guidance to technology and security uh, executives, it is that when you're thinking about acquiring a company, you know, sometimes one might do a penetration test of the of the company that you're acquiring and you know, that might get done and it might tell you about, well, what's the potential susceptibility that that organization might get exploited and breached. But the other thing that I think is really important, and I've, you know, uh, done this for some of the acquisitions that I've been uh, involved in, where if there's enough, um, you know, if there's enough things that, that you're worried about, what you can do is, is don't do a penetration test. Do some active, proactive threat hunting where you don't just look for, you know, potential vulnerabilities. You look for indicators that the company has actually already been breached or compromised or penetrated in some way. You're looking for different kinds of evidence. You're looking for, are there encrypted RAR files somewhere in the environment that might already have been aggregated by attackers and have all this stolen data in it? Are there binaries that have hashes that might be indicators of attack or indicators of compromise? Even if the company is not aware of a breach or even if their penetration test findings look, look good, you've got to do that, you know, threat hunting as well. Perhaps if uh, Marriott had done such an exercise on Starwood before the acquisition, they might've acquired, they might've uh, identified rather that, um, that there was already a breach that took place and that would have impacted the the acquisition discussions.
0: Maybe a good place to close would be this word you mentioned, accountability. And you mentioned it from a teammate aspect. But I would imagine that there's some accountability in terms of due diligence to, say, in this case, Marriott and Starwood. Marriott being accountable to do necessary due diligence to confirm Starwood's potential threat vector, et cetera, whether they've actually already been compromised. But accountability to companies that that sort of just do business and sort of like don't pay attention to or don't do enough on the security aspect and Jared's personal information or my personal information, your personal information, Neil, is taken. So how do we – what's the accountability level? I know we're sort of speaking just at security, but like what's the accountability to these companies to – do security right and respect their customers and their information? Like, is there jail time involved here? Is is there any, are you familiar with the law system, the legal system around security and companies and vulnerabilities and exploits and stuff like this? What can you speak to
2: in terms of accountability there? So first of all, I'd be happy to speak to it. I'll, of course, caveat uh, what lawyer. I what I say here that I'm <laughs> not a lawyer. Uh, uh, as as really. a former CEO. Opinion only, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As as a former CISO, I've worked together with uh, a lot of attorneys and, and the general counsels at both companies at which uh, I have been a CISO. And let me mention that I think that there have been strides in accountability over the years. So if we go back to the target breach in 2013, after the target breach, you know, it was not just the, the CISO that was fired, it was the CEO. And that was the, the first breach where that had occurred. So, so the accountability now goes up to the top, you know, and in, in one of the book chapters, you know, I, I encourage folks to have their, their, their CISO, their chief security officer report to the CEO, because at the end of the day, if something goes wrong, that CEO is gonna be held accountable. It's not the, the days where a CEO can say, oh, we had a breach, it's CISO should be, that should get fired. Well that's not necessarily the case. The CEO can get fired too if the breach is big and bad enough. And uh, in fact, if we look at you know, other breaches, if we look at the Equifax breach, there was a, a change in CEO and CISO there as well. Um, so, so the accountability has gone all the way to the top. I think that board members need to be asking their CEOs the right questions. The CEOs mm-hmm. need to be also asking the right questions if they don't have a CISO but have a CTO well, there better be somebody that should be accountable for ensuring the security of the products, uh, as well as the IT organization. Security is not just an IT problem. I think that, um, you know, it could be the case that if some companies have a CISO that are, that's still reporting to the CIO, um, well, the important thing to realize there is that security is not just an IT problem. It's, a, it's, it's much broader than that. So there has been an increase in accountability. CEOs have gone fired because of breaches you know and that accountability has gone has gone all the way up to the top. By the way, I, I don't know that the accountability has you know gone all the way to the bottom um, and I'm actually you know not quite sure that's the right way to go. I mean I think that you know for instance in the in the Equifax breach, the CEO tried to pin it on a Um, on somebody who was supposed to patch that Apache strut server. Um, But I think that's heading in the wrong direction because if you're any reasonable sized organization, you've got thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of servers. When you go to patch all your servers, inevitably, some are going to be down, Mm -hmm. some are going to be crashed, whatever. Everything's not going to get patched right the first time. Anyhow, by, by the way, you should have automated patching for that number of machines, I think relying on humans to do patching is is, is likely to fail. Um, so, so you've got to also then understand that when you're operating at any level of scale, you need to have automated technical verification that the patch got successfully deployed and the verification should take place, for instance, before any ticket about the vulnerability should get closed. Um, so I think that, you know, in terms of human accountability, I would put the onus on the, the CIOs and the CISOs to say, look, you guys need to have a scalable, systematic, automated approach to things like patching with technical verification, because I think that the days where we should expect humans to get every single detail right is the wrong direction to go.
0: Mm. Definitely uh, a troubling scenario. You know, given the breaches that have happened, the the data breaches and whatnot, it's a it's an interesting, I guess, I suppose, ever changing world, cybersecurity, cybercrime. But Neil, thank you so much for writing the book for everyone. This isn't just simply for security researchers or security experts. It's for everyone. There's a bit for everyone in there, and we need people like you out there sharing this kind of message to more people to 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 increase the ability for accountability to occur. So. Thank you, Neil, for coming on the show and sharing all you all you have.
2: Yeah, well, thank you, thank you for having me. Um, I, uh, both uh, Moody, my co-author, and myself, we had a great time writing the book on big Breach and cybersecurity lessons for everyone. My hope is that the book will be a uh, good contribution to the field that will help bring more people into it. I think there's enough security books out there that are written for security people. Uh, or uh, for developers, or you know, for different discrete audiences. But I think we need to also bring uh, boards, business executives, uh, tons of folks into the fold. And so, in the book, there is something indeed for for each of those audiences. And my hope is that folks, uh, you know, read the book, use the book within their organizations, and follow up and act on some of the advice that we provide, so that we can achieve. Uh, stronger cybersecurity posture across many organizations.
0: I agree. Change begins with awareness and awareness begins with books. So thank you. Thanks, Neil. This was awesome. Welcome.
2: Welcome.
0: That's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you check out Neil's book, Big Breaches, Cybersecurity Lessons for Everyone. And as we demonstrated in this show, it is literally for everyone. So Neil is doing his best to share wisdom with the developers out there who are security-minded. If that's you, Pick up the book and check it out. Let us know what you think. If you haven't heard yet, we have a membership. It's called ChangeLog++ because, hey, why not increment things? It is better, as they say. You can subscribe at changelog.com plus. Get closer to the metal. Make the ads disappear. And, of course, support all of our podcasts. Again, changelog.com slash plus plus. And of course, huge thanks to our partners Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats. And of course, thanks to you for listening. We appreciate your attention. We appreciate you listening. And one more step you could take is to join the community. ChangeLaw.com/community. It's free to join. Come hang with us in Slack. Call this place your home. ChangeLaw.com/community. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week.